We are in a series called First Things First. And uh, if I'm being honest with you, I have a bit of trouble myself putting first things first. Like I I do not, I was not born with an unquenchable desire for kale. And I I don't wake up in the morning dreaming of paying for my car's registration. I, I don't have to closely monitor how much time I spend flossing. But on the other hand, I feel like I could make like a really comfortable mattress just by stuffing it with the receipts I have from McDonald's. Or you could probably accomplish the same thing with like one receipt from CVS. Uh, It's hard. It's hard to put first things first. It can be really difficult. But before you even try and put first things first, there's something else you got to do. Or you might spend your whole life putting second things first or third things first or last things first. And the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out what things should go first. Because if you don't do that, Who knows if you're putting first things first or not? Jesus asked his disciples what I think is one of the most important questions anybody can ever ask themselves. And I think when we answer this question, when we answer this question, it it will allow us to know what things should go first. By answering this question, how you answer this question will have a huge impact in your life on all areas and all aspects, or virtually all aspects of your life. It's going to impact your your emotions. It's going to impact your relationships. It's going to impact how you interact with the opposite sex, how you interact with people of other racial groups. It's going to impact uh, your, your sex life. It's going to impact your financial habits. It is one of the most important questions you or I have to answer. And the question that he asked his disciples was this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Answering the question, who is Jesus, is one of the most important questions we can ask. Um, And the reason why it's so important is because he is an extremely, well, in part, because of what an incredible man he is. This is a a guy who came from the middle of nowhere— 2,000 years ago from, from, a, from a family that had no notoriety, not born to people who were in politics or people who had money or power, just born to ordinary folks in a city that had a bad reputation. And yet here we are 2,000 years later in this room because of what he did and how he lived his life. Who was this man who radically, radically impacted our history, who impacted America, who impacted the world? I mean, think about all of the, all of the aspects, of his li- aspects of our lives we would not experience if it was not for him. Think about some of the greatest pieces of art, like there'd be no Da Vinci's Last Supper. We wouldn't have uh, pieces from Handel and, and Bach, like uh, St. Matthew Passion, or Messiah. We wouldn't have the songs that we just sang about a few moments ago. It's impacted music throughout thousands of years. Much of the greatest literature we have would not exist, like Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, Paradise Lost by John Milton, Fyodor Dostoevsky, many of his books uh, would be empty without the difference that Jesus Christ made in his life. Many of our children would not enjoy the... uh, the exciting fantasy of the Chronicles of Narnia if it had not been for Jesus influencing C.S. Lewis. He's radically impacted uh, literature throughout the ages. He is, uh, he's impacted our education. Check this out. Check, this, is, this is crazy. This is from um, a, uh, is an early student handbook from um, a university in America. 
and this was very early, as you're going to tell. Um, it, was, it was actually from Harvard. Check out what this early student handbook says. It said, let every student be plainly instructed and early press, earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was, that was Harvard. That's the reason we have Harvard, because people thought we should be learning as a way of loving God with our minds, because Jesus taught us to love God with all of our minds. So it's impacted our education. It's impacted movies. It's created TV shows. There's theater, uh, theater based upon his life. Uh, fashion has been influenced by Jesus. People wear crosses now as a sign of beauty. People in Jesus' day would think that's insane, because this was a sign of, of torture and execution. Jesus has, has made his way into comedy and all manner of memes. He's impacted, he's permeated our culture to the deepest core. Who is this man? Who was this guy who came from the middle of nowhere and affected so much of our world and our lives? Was he just a good teacher? Was he just a moralist? Was he just a healer? Or... Was he something more? Well, um, there's a, a project called The State of Theology, and it's uh, some people that have got together to do research on uh, the beliefs of evangelical Christians in the modern day. And you can check out the research they've done at thestateoftheology.com. And they found out um, when they asked people, uh, evangelical Christians, um, to respond to to give their thoughts about the idea that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, they found that uh, in 2020, 30% of people agreed that Jesus was not God, and in 2022, 43% agreed that Jesus was not God. Now, for some of you in this room, that may be a shocking thing to hear. Some of you may be in the 43%, and some of you might be thinking, why does it even matter whether he was God or not? Well, here's why it matters. Because when theologians talk about uppercase G, they're talking about a very specific thing. They're not talking about lowercase g gods like Zeus. Zeus was created. He had parents. Titus, uh, Titans, like Cronus and Rhea, were his parents. So he didn't always exist. He, he was created, and he was not morally perfect. He had all sorts of weird escapades. He turned his wife into a fly, tricked her into turning into a fly so he could swallow her whole. And um, he didn't know everything. He was a lowercase uh, god G. He had some supernatural crazy powers, but um, not what theologians would refer to as uppercase G God. When we talk about that type of God, we're talking about a being that is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, greater than all things, uncreated, and created all things. And if Jesus is God, uppercase G God, that means he is all-powerful, he's all-good, he's all-knowing, he's greater than all things, he's uncreated, and he created all things. And listen, if that is who Jesus is, we need to know what he teaches because— that type of being, what he says should be first, 
should in fact be first. If Jesus knows all things, he knows the best way for you to live. If he knows, if he is all good, it means he is the standard of what is good. We look to him to understand what good and evil is. The more our actions or people's actions are like him, the more good they are, the farther they are away from that standard, the more evil they are. And because he's good, he's going to tell us how to live because he cares about us and he loves us. And we should listen to Jesus when we want to know what first things should be first are because he knows everything if, in fact, if, in fact, he is God. If he is God, we shouldn't cherry-pick what we want to believe that he says is true or not because he knows what is true. We wouldn't say, yeah, I like this about what Jesus said, but not so much this. Well, if he's God, everything he taught is the truth because he is good and will tell the truth and because he knows everything he knows what is true if he's god that means he knows how to get to heaven it means that if we disagree with him about what is right and wrong good and evil we are the ones who are incorrect so that's why it's so important to know whether jesus is god or not if he's god he's worthy of our praise and our whole life's devotion. So, if he's just a a good teacher then, I mean, we don't really need to pay much more attention to how he lives or, or, you know, organize our lives around his teachings any more than we might Plato or Aristotle or any other moral teacher. So the question is, is he God? And if he is, is there any way that we could know such a thing? How would we go about doing that? Well, a good place to start would be to listen to the people who lived during his time, who interviewed people about him, and put together biographies about his life so we can know what he taught. And we have actually people who wrote pieces of literature like that. In the uh, New Testament of the Bible, the first four books are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels, we call them, and they are biographies about the life of Jesus. And so we can look at what they had to say about Jesus to learn more about him. So let's take a look. We're going to start with the book of Luke. Luke. It's a new book I just invented. No, we're going to start with Luke. And um, I don't have the time because there's a whole lot I'm cramming into this message. And I wish I could spend the time to really um, unwrap the context of each of these verses we're going to be talking about today. But here's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't just take my word for it. Go home, uh, write down these scriptures, or take a picture of the screen, read them in their context for yourself, and, and see if what I'm saying is true. Don't just take my word for it. Dig into the word and see if it's true. So this is what... Um, Luke wrote about uh, Jesus. It's from the Christmas story. You might recognize it. And it says, And she, meaning Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. So we see Jesus was born. He had a mother who was human. So we see um, this aspect of Jesus' humanity. Um, We see in Matthew that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He got hungry just like a human does. He had limits on his body. Uh, We also see the same sort of thing in John 4, 6. Uh, Jesus was tired as he went uh, uh, down— 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So Jesus got tired. He had limits to his energy. Uh, In Luke, we also see that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So he also had some kind of limit to his knowledge as well. He didn't know everything because he learned things. So there was a limit to his body. There was a limit to his mind. We also see in Luke, um, uh, this is written about when Jesus is uh, hanging on a cross. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. So we saw that Jesus also died like a human dies. So what we find from this is that Jesus is a human. Or another way that we could say this is that Jesus had a human nature. Nature is a set of— here's a kind of maybe a highfalutin-seeming definition of a nature. But what a nature is is a set of properties that make something what it is. So let's take a cheeseburger, for example. What is the nature of a cheeseburger? Well, it's an edible thing that has buns and cheese and a meat patty. Now, if I go into McDonald's and I say, hey, I'd like a cheeseburger without any cheese, I wouldn't be ordering a cheeseburger anymore because I would be robbing it of one of the main essential properties of its nature. Or if I went into McDonald's and said, hey, I want a cheeseburger, but I want you to shred the cheese and grind up the beef, and instead of a bun, I want a taco shell, I've completely robbed it of the nature of a cheeseburger and replaced it with the nature of a taco. So something that has a nature as the cheese, of a cheeseburger has all the essential properties of a cheeseburger. If somebody has a human nature, it means they have all the properties of a human. So all the things that are true of a human would be true of Jesus if he does, in fact, as we find here, have a human nature. So uh, we find that Jesus has a human nature. So if, if Jesus is a human... Do we really need to pay him that much heed? Should we really be centering our lives and how we live and what first things we put first based on, on what, he, what he taught? Or can we just kind of shrug it off and say it's not that important? Well, this isn't the whole picture of who Jesus is that we find in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, if we look at what uh, John wrote in the very first verse of his gospel about the life of Jesus, he refers to someone called the Word. And the Word Uh, was just another name, that a title he was using to refer to Jesus. And he says this, In the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. And the Word was with God. Jesus was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was fully God. So he's saying that Jesus had a divine nature, that everything that is true of God was true of Jesus. Uh, He continues on. He says, The Word was uh, with God. The Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. So we see that He made all things. We also see from this that He's always existed. Because everything was created by Him, that means He Himself was not created. He was without a beginning. Later on, uh, John, in uh, verse 14, he says, Now the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he took up residence among us. So Jesus, who had a divine nature, at one point added a human nature to his divine nature. So now he has a human nature and a divine nature. And this word, took up residence. The Greek word for that is skenoo, and it means to set up a tent. And John's painting an image that would be familiar to his audience 
of uh, what happened to the Israelites when they escaped from slavery in Egypt and they went out into the desert and were traveling around. They had this tent with them that was called the tabernacle and they would set this up and God would make his presence in, put his presence into the tabernacle. So when uh, John is saying that Jesus took up residence, it's like he's saying he tabernacled with us. In the same way that God put his presence into the tabernacle, God put his presence in to human flesh and blood. He took on a human nature. So what we see from John is that Jesus had both a divine nature and a human nature. Now, was John the only one in the New Testament of the Bible who thought this sort of thing? Well, consider, for example, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who would later go on to be called uh, the Apostle Paul. Now, Saul of Tarsus, his whole goal was to put a stop to the people who were saying that Jesus was God, that Jesus had a divine nature. There was these crazy Christians who were worshiping Jesus, and he thought that was horrible. So he was doing everything that he could to stamp that out. He was traveling all over the place to find these people, to prosecute them, and to even see some of them executed as well. So, and yet, despite Paul doing these sorts of things, despite Paul's goal being to stomp out Christianity, listen to what he wrote later in his life to Christians in the city of Colossae. He said, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. He also wrote, To them, he's talking about the Israelites, belong the patriarchs, and from them by human descent came the Christ who is God overall blessed forever. Now, what has to happen to someone to go from doing everything they can to stop the spread of the belief that Jesus is God and Jesus should be worshipped? What has to happen to someone for from them to go to that place to this place where they're saying that this person, Jesus, is God? What has to happen in someone's life? Well, we'll find out that in a little bit. Um, but that's what Paul thought about Jesus. That's what John thought about Jesus. What did Jesus think about Jesus? Well, travel back with me to some thousand years plus before Jesus was alive. Once again to uh, this time around the uh, Israelites uh, escaping Egypt. Before that happened, God came to a man named Moses. You've probably seen the prince of Egypt before, uh, where God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he talks to him and tells him, hey, I want you to help these Israelites, these people of mine, to get free from slavery. And during this time when God's talking to Moses through the burning bush, God, or Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And what that means, we don't have time to get into today, but the Hebrew word for I am is Yahweh. And this was a, a name that the Jews would treat with great reverence and awe and respect and care. They didn't want to say it wrong. They didn't want to write it wrong. In fact, sometimes they would write the word Adonai, which means Lord, rather than Yahweh, because they didn't want to somehow disrespect this precious and sacred and holy name. So if somebody was disrespecting this name or treating it in a poor way, that, that was not a good thing. That person could get in a lot of trouble. Now, jump back to when Jesus was alive. Jesus is arguing with some Jewish people, and if you ever want to see Jesus get really feisty, go read John chapter 8. It's a great read. And he's talking with them, 
And he's saying stuff like, your father is the devil. And they're like, what are you talking about? Our father's Abraham. They're referring to the first uh, man in the nation of Israel, Abraham. They're like, no, 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 no. We belong to like Abraham. He's, he's an awesome guy. And, and Jesus says to them something kind of would have been absolutely crazy to them. He says, I've seen Abraham. And, and they respond and say this, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? And I, I, I am firmly convinced this is the greatest mic drop in history. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered them, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, why would they pick up stones to stone him? Because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was claiming he was God. And they thought that was blasphemy. So Jesus, and he considered himself to be God, that he had a divine nature that took on a human nature nature. You see, Jesus, in this verse right here, he doesn't give us the option of thinking he was a good teacher, of just a good teacher. Because if you're just a good teacher, you're not God. And if you're not God, but you're a good teacher, you're not going to lie to people and say that you're God. Because Jesus is either lying here or he's mistaken. And a good teacher wouldn't be mistaken about something as serious is that Jesus didn't get us the option of just thinking he's just a good teacher. So who, in fact, is he? Now, um, we've learned so far, New Testament teaches Jesus Christ had a divine nature, he had a human nature. Now, here's a question that maybe some of you are thinking while I'm talking about this. Uh, how, how, how does it even make sense for someone to have a divine nature and a human nature? How can you have limited knowledge at the same time having all knowledge? How can you have limited power at the same time having all power? Well, we find in the New Testament that Paul talks about this, that Jesus actually chose to limit or not access his divine power and knowledge. He says this in a letter that he writes to the Philippine, uh, Philippians. He said, he didn't write to the Philippines, they weren't around yet, but... Um, he said, in your relationships with one another, uh, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He was not using his godness and his God power and his God knowledge. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now, to use a metaphor, which metaphors aren't perfect, but they can kind of help us get our hands around some of the mysterious parts of God. Uh, if I put a blindfold around my face, I am not losing the ability to see, but I am voluntarily choosing not to be able to access my sight. In the same way, Jesus chose not to have access to his divine knowledge and his God power. So what's cool about that is that Jesus can actually relate to us. In the, in the book of Hebrews, we find that this is written. For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as, uh, uh, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So when you are feeling weak, 
When you are feeling like there's something you need to know, but you just don't have the answer. When you are feeling uh, lonely and tired or hangry or abandoned or rejected or misunderstood, Jesus' love for you is not just a distant love but it is a love that comes from someone who has experienced the crushing weight that you are under and has developed compassion in him for you. He has an experiential knowledge of what it's like to suffer as a human being. And when he sees that in you, his heart burns with love and empathy. He cares about you. Now, another question you might be having um, as we say, uh, you know, if, if Jesus limited his divine knowledge and his divine power, how is he able to perform all these miracles that go on in his life? Well, uh, we find the answer uh, in the New Testament, um, and that is that, well, okay, so the answer is a Christian teaching that we have a word for, which this word is not in the Bible, it's the word Trinity, uh, we don't find that in the Bible, but we find the concept in there, and that's, and that's this, and I wish I could explain it more, but for time's sake, I'm just going to say it means that God is three persons in one being. He is one being with three persons. God the Father, which the Bible often refers to him as just God, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we read in John where it said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God, yeah, Jesus was with God the Father, and he was also fully God himself. So Jesus um, didn't use his own power, but instead relied on the power of his Father and the knowledge of his Father and from the Holy Spirit to be able to do the incredible signs that he performed while he was alive. We find in uh, the book of Acts, Peter saying this when he was talking to some people. He said, you know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism of John preached? How God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And what did he do with that? And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So in the same way that we have to rely on God for strength and knowledge, and a lot of that we find through the Bible, uh, Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit and God for his strength and power as well. So, We've learned that Jesus Christ had a human and divine nature. God came down in the, in the flesh. Um, he didn't use his, his uh, own power. Instead, he relied on the Holy Spirit and God the Father's power. Is, is there um, anything more to believe that this is the case, that this is the way things are, rather than just the Bible tells me so? Well, I think so. And, um, and the reason is, something that I talked about in a message last year, last March, and I'm going to just shrink it down real short, but if you want to hear the full explanation, it's in a message from a series called Truth Be Known, and the message was called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And this is why it's important to know whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. When someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I just go with what they say. Right? They... They, they know something. <laughs> and if Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off and also claimed to be God, I'm going to go with what he said on that. And let me explain how our reasoning for believing that that actually happened goes. And the band's going to come back up right now. 
Gary Habermas is a uh, New Testament scholar. He developed something called the minimal facts argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And the idea is, if we look at just the facts that all uh, New Testament, or the vast majority of New Testament scholars uh, agree are reliable about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we take just those ones, um, we can build a strong case that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And the facts that scholars on both sides of the aisle, both Christian and non-Christian, agree are reliable about Jesus are as follows, that Jesus existed. He wasn't just a myth. This is this thing that's going around the internet all the time, trying to claim Jesus was just this myth that was crafted together from other myths that are around. Any serious historian will say, no, that's not the case. Jesus really did exist. That he died by crucifixion. He didn't just faint. Romans knew what they were doing. They knew how to crucify someone and kill someone. He was buried in the tomb. He was seen alive by many witnesses on different occasions. In fact, one time by 500 witnesses at once. And if we had the time, I'd explain to you why they were not hallucinations. And if you want to know why, you can check out that message I talked about. And finally, his disciples were willing to die for what they saw. Now, many people have been willing to die for what they've heard about, for what somebody else has told them. What's amazing about the disciples is they were willing to be tortured and killed for what they saw. They knew Jesus was dead, and yet they saw him alive. And it is why Thomas, who said, I will not believe until I see the holes in his hands, when he heard that Jesus was alive. When he saw Jesus, he said, he didn't just say, Jesus he didn't just say, my Lord. He said, my Lord and my God. He realized who Jesus really was. What is it that takes a man from doing everything he can to stop people from saying that Jesus is God to go to being a man who would be tortured and eventually executed because he would not cease from saying that Jesus is God. Well, Paul tells us, he said one day after Jesus was dead, he appeared to him and he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was never the same. And he realized that Jesus is God. And if he is God, what he says is what we should put first. He created us. He designed us. He knows how we're meant to function. And because he's good, he will tell us the right way to live. He gave you your purpose. Purpose is not just something anybody can make up. If that's all a purpose is, there's some horrible people who've come up with some horrible purposes and there's no way to tell them that purpose is wrong. But if Jesus is God, he knows what your purpose is. And that is what you should put first in your life. He told us to repent and turn to him for forgiveness. He came back to life not just to give us reason to believe that he truly is God, but he died and came back to life to take the punishment for our sins because he looks at us suffering in our sins not able to overcome those habits and those addictions 
and he looked at us and saw us in that state and felt compassion and love and said, let me take the punishment for that for you because he loves you. Jesus is the God who loves you when you hate yourself, when others around you hate you. Jesus is the God who loves you. We can trust him when we suffer because if he's God, it means he's good. We can trust that our suffering will be used for something good. Jesus was not relieved of his suffering. He went through more suffering than anyone can understand on our behalf. But his suffering was used for the greatest good in history, period. We can trust that our God can use our suffering for good. We can trust him when he tells us what not to do. Even when we don't have the answer why. Even when there's something we really want to do. And he says, don't do it. He has a reason why. And even if we don't know the reason, guess what? He's God. He knows what's best, better than we do. How big is our knowledge compared to his? You can't even measure how small it is by comparison. Jesus knows what's best for you and loves you enough to tell you what not to do even when you want to do it. And in the moment, we're going to introduce a new song. Ben's going to introduce a new song that celebrates this idea that our God goes by the name King Jesus. But before we do that, I want to read one final thing from this man who once did everything he could to exterminate people from saying Jesus is God and later went on to write this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, meaning he is the first thing that should be first. For him, in all, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <laughs>